Warning, Money's Crazy Mind contains language that may not be suitable for all listeners. Discretion is advised, but will be completely ignored. This is Lee, too hot to handle, too cold to hold. What do you call the Ghostbusters? Because they ain't control. Motherfucking money here with you with a bonus episode of Money's Crazy Mind. It's been a while since I've done one of these. Uh, so before we get into what we're going to talk to talk about on this bonus episode, um, let me just say why episode 65 is missing from the audio archive. It's not because I didn't want to include it or anything like that. Um, it was a retrospective of a lot of the episodes that I've done in uh, the first technically three years of Money's Crazy Mind, but I did it as uh, the year one from when I was at Redline Radio, and I did include some clips from audio uh, only episodes that I did before I was with Redline. Uh, If you guys want to check that out, check out RedlineRadioLLC.com on either um, Facebook, Twitter, Twitch.tv. We have a channel there or uh, YouTube, and you can see the video in its entirety. The link is in the description of the show for each of those formats. And uh, you can check out that video uh, retrospective that I did there. I might at some point include the audio to it, but it's just a little hard to with the way that I put everything together. It's really hard to separate those clips. All right, so this past week on the show, we talked about the movie Drop Dead Fred. It is the 31st, yes, 31st anniversary of Drop Dead Fred. And we did a little bit of a look back at the movie and why I think the movie found a new audience over the decades from when it was originally released. When the movie was originally released, it was bashed horribly, not just by critics, but by the people that saw the film alike. But then over the years, it found its audience and people have come to love the film. Um, I saw it around 10, 11 years old. So I got a lot of the the silly humor that Rick Mayall, the man who played Fred in the movie, uh, was doing. Um, but some of the more adult content that was in the film obviously passed me by until I got old enough to understand it. And um, we also talked about imaginary friend syndrome, or at least we started to, and we kind of ran out of time. So that's what this bonus episode is going to be, a deep dive into the imaginary friend syndrome, a topic that is very prevalent throughout the film, Drop Dead Fred. This isn't going to be a long episode. We're just going to kind of peruse through some of the information that we have here on imaginary friend syndrome. And um, 
you know, and then just join me this Friday where um, Redline Radio's owner, Dynamite Dave, is going to join me on the show. And we're going to talk about why Redline Radio exists, where he got the idea, and what the future holds for Redline Radio LLC. I mean, I kind of know because I'm the station manager here now at Redline Radio, but it's kind of neat to to hear it from the guy responsible for Redline Radio. Okay, so that's what's coming up this Friday night, uh, 8 p.m. to 10 p.m. live on Redline Radio LLC. You can find it on all those formats like I just mentioned, or you can find it here a few days later on Anchor and Spotify, uh, Amazon Podcasts, and all the great places that you find um, this show. Uh, all right. So imaginary friend syndrome, also known as pretend friends or invisible friends, made up friends are a psychological and social phenomenon where a friendship or other interpersonal relationship takes the place or takes place in imagination rather than the physical reality. Although they may seem real to their creators, children usually understand that their imaginary friends are not real. The first studies focusing on imaginary friends are believed to have been conducted during the 1890s. There is little research about the concept of imaginary friends in children's imaginations. Um, Clausen and Passman in 2007 reported that imaginary friends were originally described as being supernatural creatures and spirits that were thought to connect people with past lives. Adults and imaginary companions, or I'm sorry, I skipped over a sentence there. Uh, Adults in history have had entities such as household gods, guardian angels, and muses that functioned as imaginary companions to provide comfort, guidance, and inspiration for creative work. It is possible that phenomenon appeared among children during the mid-19th century when childhood was emphasized as an important time for play and imagination. Now, I did briefly talk about that during our live thing, but let me uh, dive a little bit deeper into that. So I don't agree with that sentence there where it says that the phenomenon appeared in children in the mid-19th century when childhood was emphasized as an important time for play and imagination. A lot of that went through most, most, of the 20th century as well. I mean, when I was growing up, my mom told me, go outside and play with your friends more times than I can count. She didn't want me in the damn house because I made a mess. And I think that that went on mostly through a lot of the 20th century until the late 20th century into the early early 21st century uh, when video games and things like that became so prevalent. Once we became reliable or I'm sorry, once we relied on electronic devices, smartphones, tablets, video game consoles, computers, etc., and so on and so forth, you know, the idea of going out and playing with your friends and, and being physical, you know, playing basketball, playing football, tag, you know, things like that, it, it, it kind of fell off. So I'm thinking that maybe even imaginary friend syndrome uh, started falling to the wayside, Uh, during this emphasis on electronic devices as well. But that didn't happen until well into the end, like I said, the end of the 20th century. You know, all the way through high school, all the way even to some of the early years of my adulthood. I mean, I was very active. Boy Scouts, uh, you know, just playing with my friends in general. I mean, you know, we were always in somebody's yard or on somebody's porch or doing something, but I was 
rarely in my house. It wasn't until I became an actual adult that a lot of those things changed for me. So um, a little bit more about the description of imaginary friend syndrome here. Like I said, I'm not going to go through the whole thing. And then we'll get into some of the research into some of the times in people's lives uh, that are prevalent to this. I don't want to call it a syndrome because it's not really a syndrome, but, um, you know, to the phenomena. I guess we'll call it, of imaginary friends. Uh, In some studies, imaginary friends are defined as children impersonating a specific character imagined by them or objects, toys that are personified. However, some psychologists will define an imaginary friend only as a separate created character. Imaginary friends can be people, but they can also take the shape of other characters such as animals or abstract ideas such as ghosts, monsters, robots, aliens, or angels. These characters can be created at any point during a lifetime, though Western culture suggests that they are most acceptable in preschool and school-age children. They often function as tutelaries when played with by a child. They reveal, according to several theories of psychology, a child's anxieties, fears, goals, and perceptions of the world through that child's conversations. Uh, They are, according to some children, physically indistinguishable from real people, while others see their imaginary friends only in their heads, and still others cannot see the friend at all, but can sense his or her presence. Most research agrees that girls are more likely than boys to develop imaginary friends. Once children reach a school age, boys and girls are equally likely to have an imaginary companion. Research has often reiterated that there is not a specific, quote, type of child that creates an imaginary friend. Now, that is a sentence that I find, or that is a a topic, I should say, that I find very interesting, especially when it says that most research agrees that girls are more likely than boys to develop imaginary friends. Here's why I think that that is the way it is. Girls, um, especially in the 19th and 20th century, were more likely to have dolls and dolls that they were able to create their own identity for. Whereas boys had G.I. Joe, Transformers. And this, again, is something that I did touch on during the show. Um, you know, but we had G.I. Joe. We had Transformers. We had Ghostbusters. We had Ninja Turtles. We had, you know, all these different things that already had their own identity. And a lot of times, and I can only speak for myself in this, especially growing up in the mid-'80s, you know, we basically just mimicked with our toys what we saw on cartoons. I mean, there was a G.I. Joe cartoon, there was a Transformers, Ninja Turtles, real Ghostbusters, et cetera, et cetera. And I remember after watching the episodes of Ninja Turtles and watching the episodes of real Ghostbusters and watching all of these things, that I would basically just pull out my toys since I had just about everything that existed Uh, for those characters during that time and I would mimic what I just saw on the television and if I didn't have the specific villains that were featured especially more in Ninja Turtles because a lot of those villains never got toys you know I would just recreate that episode with a different villain let's say it was Shredder or let's say it was Mutagen Man or you know whoever you know I would 
um, you know, change up a couple of things to make that happen. Now, with the real Ghostbusters, you know, you could basically have any kind of adventure you wanted because they came out with so many different characters. Some from the actual cartoon, some that were never featured in the cartoon, Fearsome Flush, Bug Eye, etc., so on. Um, you know, but girls, they get these dolls. A lot of times they're nameless. And they would be told, you know, well, what's your doll's name? And they would come up with a name for that doll. Then they would come up for a personality with that doll. So I think that's why girls were more prevalent to have imaginary friends than boys until they reached school age. And I think a lot of that also stems from, um, you know, when it comes to the school age part of it, you know, it stems from the fact that, you know, every child and every person, every identity on this planet is different and when you put them in a situation where they're with other boys and other girls, that maybe the things that they enjoy and the things that they like don't mesh with that other with the other people that are around. And you're um, living with the fact that maybe people don't like what you like and you're just going to find a way in your imagination to have friends and have fun by yourself. Um, so we're going to go into this next uh, paragraph here, and then we'll probably move on to some of the research that has been done with imaginary friend syndrome. Research has shown that imaginary friends are a normative part of childhood and even adulthood. Additionally, some psychologists suggest that imaginary friends are much like a fictional character created by an author. As Eileen Kennedy Moore points out, adult fiction writers often talk about their characters taking on a life of their own, which may be an, an uh, analogous process to child's invisible friends. In addition, Marjorie Taylor and colleagues have found that fiction writers are more likely than average to have had imaginary friends as children. Now, this I find very interesting because I'm a very creative person. Obviously, I have this podcast. I host uh, Steel City Renegades. I have my own radio show. But not only that, but I also write screenplays for movies and, and uh, plays and things like that. But I never remember having an imaginary friend as a child. It's probably something I should probably talk to my mom about to see if it is something that happened. But as far as I remember, I never had imaginary friends. But also... I did have a very active imagination. Like I said, I would play with my Ghostbusters, my Ninja Turtles, so on, etc. Uh, there is a difference between the common imaginary friend and that many children create and the imaginary voices of psychopathology. Often, when there's a psychological disorder and an inner voices are present, they add negativity to the conversation. The person with the disorder may sometimes believe that they imagined voices are physically real, not an imagined inner dialogue. Imaginary friends can serve various functions. Playing with imaginary friends enables children to enact behaviors and events that they have not yet experienced. Imaginary play allows children to use their imagination to construct knowledge of the world. In addition, imaginary friends might also fulfill child's innate desire to connect with others before actual play among peers is common. According to psychologist Lev Vykovsky, cultural tools and interaction with people mediate psychological functioning and cognitive development. 
Imaginary friends perceived as real beings could teach children how to interact with others along with many other social skills. Vitovsky's cultural, sociocultural view of children development includes the notion that of children's, quote, zone of proximal development, end quote, which is the difference between what a child can do with and without help. Imaginary friends can aid children in learning things about the world that they could not learn without help, such as appropriate social behavior, and thus act as a scaffold for children to achieve slightly above their social capacity. In addition, imaginary friends also serve as means for children to experiment with and explore the world. In this sense, imaginary companions also relate to uh, Paget's theory of child development because they are completely constructed by the child. According to Paget, children are scientific problem solvers who self-construct experiences and build internal mental structures based on experimentation. The creation and of and interaction with imaginary companions help children to build such mental structures. The relationship between a child and their imaginary friend can serve as a catalyst for the information of real relationships in later development and thus provides a head start to practical real life interaction. Okay, so here's why I think that that's important to know. So a lot of times, and I think that this is, I don't want to say it's blamed on Drop Dead Fred because I don't think it's blamed on Drop Dead Fred, but I think a lot of um, emphasis is put into people that have had imaginary friends in the past, not necessarily on the creative front like that's what we're reading about here, but um, that some people might find it as an early onset to schizophrenia or multiple personality disorder or anything like that. But what we're seeing here is that the imaginary friend is more of a way of exploring and becoming one with the world around you and things like that. So it's a very positive experience, not a negative one. So let's look into some of the research that we have here. Uh, it's been theorized that children with imaginary friends develop language skills, and retain knowledge faster than children without them, which may be because these children get more linguistic practice than their peers as a result of carrying out quote-unquote conversations with their imaginary friends. Kuttner reported that 65% of 7-year-old children report they have had an imaginary companion at some point in their lives. He further reports that imaginary friends are an integral part of many children's lives. They provide comfort in times of stress, companionship when they're lonely, someone to boss around when they feel powerless, and someone to blame for the broken lamp in the living room. Most important, an imaginary companion is a tool young children use to help them make sense of the, of the adult world. All right, so couple of things to break down in that and then we'll read one more paragraph out of this and then we'll move on to the stages of development when more most people get imaginary friends <clears throat> um they provide comfort in times of stress companionship when they're lonely someone to boss them around when they feel powerless and someone to blame when for the broken lamp in the living room here's why that part of it is important um you know, let's say like like with me, when my, my parents didn't get divorced until I was 10. So I'm a little bit beyond the age of when a lot of this stuff has happened. Um, you know, 
comfort in times of stress. That's actually something that was brought up in the film Drop Dead Fred. And I, and this is why I think Drop Dead Fred is so far beyond its time. And this is why I wanted to bring up the imaginary friend syndrome during the show. Um, Fred appeared in Lizzie's life, the character in the movie, when her mother became super bossy and was controlling her life and trying to make her and her father feel powerless so much so to the point that her father walked out fred was that medium to comfort her when her mother was being a bitch uh, you know for lack of better terminology there are several moments in the movie that are flashbacks to when she was a child when her mother just completely overreacted to situations that were happening and just made her feel completely powerless and fred was sitting there to say you know um you know it's not you it's her and things like that uh for example um fred wakes lizzie up in the middle of the night and they go to play burglars they steal menial things out of the house and bury them in the flower bed in the front yard uh the parents wake up because obviously they hear the noises that fred and, and lizzie are making um, the father accidentally attacks a police officer, gets arrested. Uh, Fred and Lizzie are hiding in a tree in the front yard. And Fred, uh, Lizzie tells Fred, you know, maybe mommy's right. Maybe I can't do anything right. And then Fred basically sits there and says, well, wait, well hang on. You know, there's nothing wrong with you. You're great. She's not. You know, and just helps her try to get through it. And then the reason why Fred appeared to Lizzie when she was an adult, and this is obviously something that we're hearing from doing all this research, her, her marriage was falling apart. Her husband had cheated on her, and she needed someone to help her realize her own self-worth again. And Fred, of course, became that character. And he even said, I'm stuck because you're not happy, so I need you to get happy so I can get on with being an imaginary friend for somebody else. And, you know, that's kind of like what how the story develops and everything like that. So a lot of what we're reading here in this research adds up to what was happening in Drop Dead Fred, which is, again, why I think Fred, Drop Dead Fred was a movie beyond its time. All right, so we're already at the 20-minute mark. We're going to take a quick break here on Money's Crazy Mind, and we'll be right back. Money's Crazy Mind and Redline Radio LLC is proudly sponsored by Tattoo Therapy, Inc. In the Greenbrier Shopping Center at 6259 Pearl Road, Parma Heights, Ohio. You can contact Riley today at 440-747-7130. They are one of the premier tattoo parlors in Northeast Ohio. And don't forget to tell them that Redline Radio sent you. Money's Crazy Mind is brought to you by Incredible Keepsakes. At Incredible Keepsakes, cherished moments are made to last forever. T-shirts, binders, cups, you name it, Incredible Keepsakes can make it. Reach out to them today at IncredibleKeepsakes.com or 440-242-9648. Don't forget to mention you heard about them on Redline Radio, LLC. 
All right, welcome back into the Asylum and Money's Crazy Mind bonus episode. We are discussing the imaginary friend syndrome because we talked about the cult classic film Drop Dead Fred this past week on the live show, which you can hear every Friday night, 8 to 10 p.m. on Redline Radio, LLC. Well, not .com, but you can listen to it on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Twitch, all of which are available in the description. Okay, so Taylor Carlson and Giroux, uh, in their 2001 published book on page 190, hold that despite some results uh, suggesting that children with imaginary friends might be superior in intelligence, if it is not true that all intelligent children create them. If imaginary friends can provide assistance to children in developing their social skills, they must function as an important roles in the lives of children. And that was uh, by Hoff in 2004. What interested in was interested in Hoff. Oh, okay. So that's still from that original book. Hoff in 2004 was interested in finding out uh, the roles and functions of imaginary friends and how they impacted the lives of children. The results of her study have provided that some significant insight on the roles of imaginary friends. Many of the children reported their imaginary friends as being sources of comfort in times of boredom and loneliness. Another interesting result was that imaginary friends served to be mentors for children in their academies. They were encouraging, provided motivation, and increased the self-esteem of children when they did well in school. Finally, imaginary friends were reported as being moral guides for children. Many of the children reported that their imaginary friends served as a conscience and helped them to make the correct decisions in times where morality was questioned. Other professionals such as Marjorie Taylor feel imaginary friends are common among school-aged children and are part of normal social cognitive development. Part of the reason people believed children gave up imaginary companions early, earlier than has been observed in is observed is related to Paget's stages of cognitive development. Paget suggested that imaginary companions disappeared once a child entered the concrete operational stage of development. Marjorie Taylor identified middle school children with imaginary friends and followed up six years later as they were completing high school. At follow-up, those who had imaginary friends in middle school displayed better coping strategies but a low social preference for peers. So he suggested that imaginary friends may directly benefit children's resiliency and positive adjustment because imagination play with a character involves the child often imagining how another person or character would act. Research has been done to determine if having an imaginary companion as a positive effect on the theory of mind development. All right, so let's break that part of this down here. So a lot of the same stuff that we're seeing here, it helps with cognitive um, development and things of that nature. But there is a little bit of discrepancy on to when imaginary friends disappear for some people. Um, and I think it's great that Marjorie Taylor identified middle school children having imaginary friends and then followed up with them after high school and realized that they have small social circles, which is what um, that person was trying to say there. Um 
you know, so low social preference for peers, so which means that they just have a few close friends and they don't really, uh, you know, have to interact with a lot of different people, which, you know, that's kind of me. I have my small circle of friends and then, you know, everybody else is just kind of there. Um, so, you know, th there's that. Uh, in a previous study, Taylor and Carlson found that four-year-old children who had imaginary friends scored higher on emotional understanding measures and that having a theory of mind would predict higher emotional understanding later on in life. When children develop the realization that other people have different thoughts and beliefs other than their own, they are able to grow in their development of theory of mind as they begin to have better understandings of emotions. So positive psychology, the article pretend, play, and positive psychology, natural companions, defined many great tools that are seen in children who engage in pretend play. These five areas include creativity, coping, emotion regulation, empathy, or con uh, emotional understanding and hope. Hope seems to be the underlying tool children use in motivation. Children become more motivated when they believe in themselves. Therefore, children will not be discouraged to come up with different ways of thinking because they will have confidence. Imaginary companionship displays immense creativity, helping them to develop their social skills, and creativity is frequently discussed term amongst positive psychology. As imaginary companion can be considered the product of the children's creativity, whereas the communication between the imaginary friend and the child is considered to be the process. All right. So obviously we've broken that particular study down, you know, quite a bit already throughout this entire uh, half hour journey here that we've been on already. I can't believe that. Uh, imaginary, so this is adolescence now. So this is when, um, they believe that a lot of the imaginary friend, uh, play happens. Imaginary companions in adolescence, a sign of a deficient or positive development, which is another article explores the extent to which adolescents create imaginary companions. The researchers explored the prevalence of imaginary companions in adolescents by investigating the diaries of adolescents 12 to 17. In addition, they looked at the characteristics of these imaginary companions and did a content analysis of the data ob obtained in the diaries. There were three hypotheses tested. The deficient hypothesis, the gifted hypothesis, and the egocentrism hypothesis. The results of the studies concluded that creative and socially competent adolescents with great coping skills were particularly prone to the creation of imaginary friends. These findings did not support the deficient hypothesis or ego egocentrism hypothesis, further suggesting these imaginary companions were not created with the aim to replace or substitute a real-life family member or friend, but they simply created another, quote, very special friend, unquote. This is surprising because it usually assumed that children who create imaginary companions have deficits of some sort, and in addition, for an adolescent to have an imaginary companion is unheard of. So there you go. Even teenagers can have imaginary friends as well. And, you know, maybe that's why, you know, uh, 
teenagers these days and the, you know how we're always talking about how these kids these days have no coping skills or you know everything's offensive to them and so on and so forth it's because their imagination's been taken away from them because of not being able to do things like this so there's a um there's another study being done called tupla Following the popularizing and uh, secularizing of the concept of tupla in the Western world, these practitioners calling themselves tuplamancers report an improvement to their personal lives through the practice and new unusual sensory experiences. Some practitioners of tupla for sexual and romantic interactions, though the practice is considered taboo. A survey of the community with 118 respondents on the explanation of tuplas found that 85 percent support a metaphysical explanation 76.5 support a neurological or psychological explanation and 14 percent other explanations nearly all practitioners consider the tupla a real or somewhat real person the number of, a tr of, of active participants in these online communities is in the low hundreds and few meetings in person have actually taken place so to, to uncover the origin of the imaginary companion and learn more about the children who create them, it is necessary to seek out children who have created imaginary companions. Unfortunately, young children cannot accurately self-report. Therefore, the most effective way to gather information about children and their imaginary companions is by interviewing the people who spend the most time with them. Often mothers are primary caretakers who spend most of the time with a child. Therefore, for the study, 78 mothers were interviewed and asked whether their child had an imaginary friend. If the mother revealed that the child did not have an imaginary companion, then the researcher asked about the child's tendencies to personify objects. In order to convey the meaning of the personified objects, the researchers explained to the mothers that it is common for children to choose a specific toy or object that they are particularly attached to or fond of. For the object to qualify... A as a personified object, the child had to treat it as animate. Furthermore, it is necessary to reveal what children consider an imaginary friend or pretend play. In order to distinguish a ch child having or not having an imaginary companion, the friend had to be in, in existence for at least a month. In order to ex examine the developmental significance of preschool, Children and their imaginary companions, the mothers of the children, were interviewed. The major conclusion from the study was that there is a significant distinction between invisible companions and personified objects. All right, so I kind of believe that as well. Um, you know, I mean, when I was a little kid, I had this plush Michelangelo uh, doll. And, you know, you were able to lift its, its headband up and you were able to move his arms around him, you know, put him in different positions and everything like that. I took that damn thing everywhere. And I guess you could say I kind of thought it was animate because I would, you know, play with it and things like that. But also it was a fucking toy. So, you know, who knows? But that's kind of um, that's kind of it about you know, the history of imaginary friend syndrome, how it's looked into and things like that. So let's wrap this up here. Cause I didn't think that this would be a 40 minute episode, but it's getting damn near close to it. Uh, so imaginary friends, you know, everybody thought that they were originally a bad thing. It turns out that they're probably a really good thing to the development of children and adolescents and helps them become more socially active and socially 
intent. So, do I have a problem with people having imaginary friends? Hell no. You know, have as, as many imaginary friends as you want. But that's just this uh, follow-up here to the episode where I didn't get to f- uh, finish my discussion on imaginary friends. Thanks so much for checking out this bonus episode. And don't forget, check us out Friday night where I speak to the owner of Redline Radio LLC, Dave Wallencheck, and see how Redline came about, how happy he is having me there, and what the future holds for Redline Radio LLC. Also, I have a brand new show on RedlineRadioLLC.com, and it is actually on RedlineRadioLLC.com, our 24-hour radio station where we play all kinds of different kind of music, and that is called Money's Crazy Soundtrack. This Thursday night, I have invited the hosts of Redline Radio's most popular show at at this moment, Talking About Balls, to join me to talk all about how the name Talking About Balls came up with a sports show and also some of their likes, dislikes, and music handpicked by them. So, Money's Crazy Soundtrack is every Thursday night from 10 p.m. to midnight on RedlineRadioLLC.com. Just click, go there, click on the player, and it'll start playing the show. Or, if you have an Android device, you can go into the Google Play Store, search Redline Radio LLC, and download our app. I will see you Thursday night on RedlineRadioLLC.com, but I will also see you Friday night on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Twitch. Until then, everybody. Promotions and Nameless Faceless Production. That's all, folks.